holiness. What comes to your mind when you hear the word holiness? You might think that there is a corresponding correlation between crabbiness and holiness. But not according to the scriptures. In fact, as we're going to see in Leviticus chapter 19, which the heading of it is this summons for God's people, according to verse 2 of chapter 19, to be holy. He says, you shall be holy, for I, Yahweh your God, am holy, is the heading of a section which could be summarized with those two great commandments that Jesus summarized all, the, all of God's law with, namely, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength, and to, a verse we're going to see, Lord willing, next week, to love your neighbor as yourself. So there should be a sweetness to holiness, a sweetness that manifests itself in your relationship with others. Not a crankiness, not a crabbiness, but a sweetness. Now we find this chapter 19 of Leviticus on on the tail end of those first 16 chapters of Leviticus in which God gives the sacrificial system and it kind of culminates with the Day of Atonement. Then we saw in chapter 17 there's laws related to blood, which really goes uh, very much along with chapter 16 and the whole Day of Atonement. And then chapter 18 begins what is sometimes called that holiness code, and it starts in the family with sexual purity. But then when we get to chapter 19, as I just mentioned, it, it, it highlights holiness in relationship to our relationship with God, namely being wholly devoted to Him, but also in our relationship with others. And so this morning, I want, I want you to see three ways in which holiness manifests itself in love to neighbor. The first way is in being generous towards your neighbor. Notice verse 9 and 10. <clears throat> I read it already, but let me read it again. It says, Now when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap to the very corners of your field, nor shall you gather the gleanings of your harvest, nor shall you glean your vineyard, nor shall you gather the fallen fruit of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the afflicted and for the sojourner. I am Yahweh your God. Notice first of all, as we've mentioned throughout uh, last week's message, but this repetition, this refrain, I am Yahweh, I am Yahweh your God. It's like God is constantly reminding them that he's giving them these standards because of who he is, because of his character, because of what he's done for them in redeeming them out of Egypt. And here he says, he gives this very interesting command that when they're reaping the harvest or from the vineyard, there's two kind of different uh, categories here, reaping the harvest or the vineyard, they're not to reap to the very edges of their land. In other words, if you were a farmer, and this is obviously anticipating when they're actually in the land. At this point, they're in the midst of sand. They're not growing a whole lot. God is providing manna from heaven and water from rocks. 
and, and, and quail. It's, uh, he's miraculously providing for them for these some 40 years before they actually get into the land. But, but when they get into the land, they're not to harvest the edges of their land. Why? Well, he says this is to be left for the afflicted and for the sojourner. The afflicted were persons who were destitute poor. These were the miserable poor. These are the poor. They're so poor. They're hungry poor. They're, they're living meal to meal. And for the sojourner, not the slow learner, the sojourner, this is the person who's the alien, the foreigner, the person who is coming from a foreign land and, and, and they're, they're unable to acclimate themselves to the culture and maybe even not, don't know the language and because of that, they are also destitute, poor. No doubt the afflicted would include people who are widows, people who are in need. And notice it says here, not only the very corners of your field, but the gleanings of your harvest. Now, for those of us city folk, we need to know what a gleaning is. Gleaning was when, you know, you, you would have the initial harvest where you would go out and gather all the crops. So imagine you go, go to your backyard in the garden, you grab everything that you can. But gleaning meant to strip it bare. It meant you went back a third, a fourth time to make sure all of it was taken. And so the idea here is you leave the gleaning. So not only do you leave the edges unharvested with that initial harvest, you don't keep going back a second, a third, a fourth time to make sure all of it is taken. And this was also to be done with the vineyard where fruit that had fallen in the vineyard, it was to be left So this here is a call for those living in the land, those Israelites, to be generous towards those in need. And also here, something of what we see here is that, notice this wasn't just handing food to the destitute, handing food to the poor, handing food to the sojourner, but it was letting them work for themselves. You see, God gives dignity to work. Work is something that God gave before the fall of man. Now, after the fall of man, indeed, there is a kind of curse that comes with work where there's thorns and there's thistles, there's working from the sweat of your brow, but there's dignity to work. I believe we will be working in the eternal state, in the new heavens and new earth. Because there is something wonderful about work. There is something good about work. And so this is a kind of program of generosity to help the poor in such a way that does not undignify them by giving them a handout, but dignifies them and allowing them to work for themselves and to gather the crop. You may say, well, that doesn't sound like much work, Matt. Well, have you ever been blueberry picking? It's a very tedious process, you know. You feel like you've been working a very long time and all you have is this little bowl of blueberries. And you're thinking, I think I'll just go to Aldi's next time. (laughs) 
We have a wonderful illustration of this kind of generosity from an Old Testament narrative book. Remember the book of Ruth? Remember Naomi had lost her husband and then she lost her two boys and she was left with two daughters-in-law, Ruth and Orpah. And remember, Ruth's the one who actually winds up coming with her when they get wind that, that, that there's been, uh, uh, the famine has been lifted in Israel. And so they go back to Bethlehem and here these two women who are in the ancient world, there was not a whole lot of work opportunities for women. And so they were dependent upon the generosity of Israelites who are willing to let them do the gleaning from their harvest that, that didn't harvest all the way to the edges. And so you remember Naomi sends Ruth off and she finds Boaz. And his fields. And in Ruth chapter 2 verse 3 it says, So she went and came and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And so it happened that she, she came to the portion of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the family of Elimelech. And in 2.7, And she said, Please let me glean and gather after the reapers among the sheaves. Thus she came and has remained from morning until now, and she has been sitting in the house for a little while. And so we can see in the book of Ruth, Boaz obeying this Levitical law that was given hundreds of years prior, and Boaz himself reflecting something of the heart of Almighty God and his generosity and kindness towards the destitute, towards the poor. And God puts an exclamation point on this command at the end of verse 10 when he says, I am Yahweh your God. God was the one who gave this command to demonstrate his heart for the needy and his encouraging his own people to be open-handed towards those in need. And this, by the way, isn't the only law that we find in Torah related to this kind of posture. In Deuteronomy 15, 7 through 11, it says, If there is a needy one among you, one of your brothers, and in any of your gates and your towns of your land, which Yahweh your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart, nor close your hand from your needy brother, but you shall freely open your hand to him, and shall generously lend him sufficient for his need and whatever he lacks. Similarly, Deuteronomy 24, verses 18 through 22. But you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt and that Yahweh your God redeemed you from there. Therefore I'm commanding you to do this thing. When you reap the harvest in your field and have forgotten a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back and get it. It shall be for the sojourner, for the orphan, and for the widow, in order that Yahweh your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat the olive tree, you're not to go over the boughs after you finish. It shall be for the sojourner, and for the orphan, and for the widow. And when you gather your grapes in the vineyard, you shall not glean it after you finish. It shall be for the sojourner, for the orphan, for the widow. And you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore I am commanded you to do this thing. So God commands his people to be large-hearted towards those in need. The orphan, those who are without parents, 
Children who are hungry, that don't have a father to provide for them. Widows, women who don't have a husband to provide for them. And sojourners, foreigners. Friends, God would have us to be large-hearted towards those in need. And we see this as well carry over into the New Testament, do we not? In fact, so much, if you, if you trace the book of Acts, it traces Paul's missionary journeys, but, but also it, you, you can trace it by the way in which he's going from church to church collecting an offering. An offering for whom? For the saints in Jerusalem. The saints who had been persecuted. The saints who were experiencing famine. You read those large sections on giving in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, 8, and 9. These, these sections on giving uh, were about Paul collecting an offering for those believers in Jerusalem. Luke chapter 6 and verse 38 says, Give and it will be given to you. They will pour it into your hand, a lap of good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. For by, this, by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. In other words, God is the one who has given us all that we have. And sometimes we get so tight-fisted with it. He wants us to have an open hand to those in need. Not in such a way that hurts more than it helps, as we see so many of the social programs in existence with our government today that cultivate laziness and sloth. But we see here, even with this ancient program that God gave to Israel, was to encourage work. People who were able needed to be working, but also it included a generous heart of those saints. And just as the motivation for those ancient Israelites was they were to do this in light of God redeeming them out of Egypt. So when we come to the New Testament, in that large section on giving in 2 Corinthians 7 through 9, in verse 8 and 9 of 2 Corinthians, Paul says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though being rich, Yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. In other words, the motivation for the new covenant Christian is that Jesus, the eternally wealthy one, who is God of very God, who existed in the eternal glory of the Father, he condescended and took upon himself the poverty of living in this world, that he could say of himself that that. Foxes have a place to stay. Birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has no place to lay His head. He took upon poverty so that we who are poor might become rich in Christ. This is reflective of the heart of God so that the gospel motivates us as God has been generous towards us. And has made us rich in Christ. And friend, are you not rich in Christ this morning? Paul says you've been given all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ. We are filthy rich in Christ. We are co-heirs with Jesus. 
we have an inheritance that is incorruptible, undefiled, and never fades away. He calls us to be large-hearted towards those in need. And so, friend, what is, what is your relationship to possessions? Do you have them or do they have you? Do you possess them or do they possess you? Do they lord over your hearts? And friends, I understand that we're living in strange times where we're seeing the inflation of the dollar and things are getting tighter and tighter. Where we may actually have to realize that we are dependent upon the Lord. We may have to actually pray Give us this day our daily bread. And mean it. But friend, I encourage you to be generous towards your neighbor in need. Secondly, to be genuine towards your neighbor. To be genuine. And by genuine, I don't mean we live in a strange culture of authenticity. Just... Just be true to yourself. Any sinful or wicked desire you have, just express it to everybody. No, that's not what I'm talking about. Be genuine, be truthful, be honest towards others. Verse 11, you shall not steal, nor deal falsely, nor lie to one another. You shall not swear falsely by my name, so as to profane my name, I am Yahweh. We see here, as I've mentioned earlier in this, this series in Leviticus 19, we, we really do see all the Ten Commandments sprinkled through Leviticus 19. Here we see two of them. The commandment, the Eighth Commandment, you shall not steal. The Ninth Commandment, to not bear false witness or to not lie to one another. Notice we see them coupled together here. He says, you shall not steal. This is speaking of theft done in secret. And friends, just just consider with me a moment the evils of stealing. Taking something that does not belong to you. You have not worked for it. It has not been given to you. You do not own it. You have no claims over it. Somebody else has claims over it. And you have the audacity to take it for yourself. God says, no. Uh Uh-uh. You don't do that. That is a wicked thing. And by the way, it assumes something here that we see assumed throughout the Scripture. Namely, the reality of property rights. That there is such a thing as individual property that you own. So that the the notion of communism where the government owns anything or we communally all own it together doesn't exist in Scripture or else the command not to steal wouldn't be there. To steal from others, to take from others is a very Judas-like thing to do. A very Judas-like thing who stole money from the money bag as the treasurer of the original 12 disciples. 
to steal from others is a very satanic-like thing to do, as we see Jesus alludes to in John chapter 10, verse 10, when he says, the thief comes only to steal, to kill, and destroy. I have come that they might have life, abundant life. To steal from others. And we often have subtle ways of stealing that we may not even think of stealing. Ways of copying certain things that according to copyright laws we're not supposed to. Bootlegged movies, bootlegged music, stealing time from our employer. We live in a world of thieves and often have thieving, greedy hearts ourselves. Why do I have so many keys? Why do I have so many alarms? Why do I have a small fortune invested in a surveillance system around my house? Because we live in a world of thieves. God the Almighty says, you shall not steal from one another. What could be a more unloving thing to do to take from another that which does not belong to you? It's the very opposite of love. It's seeking only for yourself. It's the opposite of what we see in verse 9 and 10 where you're generous and large-hearted towards others. You're willing to give. But here, you're taking that which does not belong to you. says, nor deal falsely with one another, nor lie to one another. And, and again, here in the, the context of stealing, this, this, this may be indicative of dealing falsely with one another in the relationship of business transactions. God is concerned about what happens in the marketplace. He is concerned about integrity when it comes to matters of buying and selling. Proverbs 11 verse 1 says, A deceptive balance is an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is His delight. What's a deceptive balance? When you've rigged the scales so that somebody thinks they're purchasing something of a certain value, that it's not that value. Or Proverbs 20 verse 10, Differing weights and differing measures, both of them are an abomination to Yahweh. Proverbs 20, verse 23, differing weights are an abomination to Yahweh and a deceitful balance is not good. God is concerned about honesty and integrity in any of our buying and selling transactions. He sees it all. He knows it all. There's a story of a lady who one afternoon she was she went out to purchase some food for dinner she was having guests over and she drove to her local grocery store she goes to the meat department she asked for a large roast the butcher brings out a roast for her and puts it on the scale and she says um, 
It's not big enough. Now the butcher knows that's the only roast they have left. And so the butcher takes that roast, goes back to the freezer, acts like he gets another roast, comes back to the scale. This time he puts his finger on the scale to make the roast look like it's bigger, but it's the same roast. And she says, I'll take both of them. Now I don't know how that story ended. But it it illustrates this idea of dealing falsely with one another. Rigging the scales. Being deceitful in our dealings with one another. And, and, And notice verse 12 here. And you shall not swear falsely by my name so as to profane the name of the Lord your God, I am Yahweh. And so you see the, this kind of cluster of commands in verse 11 and 12, they all seem to be related to business transactions and dealing with one another. And what happens often when a person gets caught deceitfully dealing with another? What do they often do? I swear to God I didn't do it. Right? Right? I swear I'm telling the truth. Before Almighty God, I'm telling the truth. And so it's no wonder that in this cluster of commands, God says, you shall not swear falsely by my name. Don't you dare invoke my name into your dirty dealings with others. When a person lies under oath in God's name, he profanes God's name. And often, in in this context, these kinds of things would often play out in a courtroom kind of setting in ancient Israel. In, In so much of law courts back then, and even today, are based upon the truthful testimony of others. And often these testimonies are... Under oath. I mean, even today. Do you swear to tell the truth? The whole truth. Nothing but the truth. So help me God. And yet people so often plow through that oath. And profane the name of Almighty God. And friends, you may be able to get away with it in today's law courts. You may be able to get away with it in your business transactions with others, but not before the all-seeing eye of Almighty God. He sees all. He knows all. So, my friends... Let's press this home a little bit. Let's go from preaching to do some meddling. How about you and your business dealings with others? How about you and your honesty and integrity in the workplace? This can be a peculiar temptation, especially for some of you who may be involved with sales. Right? 
You have a certain quota, constant pressure from your manager, your supervisor to, to make so many sales per month. And there may be temptations to be just a little bit deceitful on the product that you're selling, just a little bit manipulative in your sales tactics, just a little bit overselling what you're actually selling. But friend, you need to understand that God is the one who will ultimately give you either the success or the failure in your sales. God is concerned that you be honest, have integrity, be truthful. He wants you to be honest. And by the way, I mean in the long haul, this kind of integrity and honesty it works, does it not? I mean, some of you have a car mechanic you've been going to for years. Why? You trust them. But all it would take is one little instance where you know that they were hoodwinking you. And guess what? Time to get a new mechanic. Right? But if you demonstrate integrity, honesty over the long haul, more people are going to, to trust you. More people are going to want to buy what you're selling because they know this is a person I can trust. Friends, be honest. Be genuine. And again, this highlights just as the open hand, the large heartedness towards your neighbor and those in need is reflective of the character of God. So these commands here to be honest, to be truthful, to have integrity, to be genuine is reflective of Almighty God. God is a God of truth. God hates lies. There's six things the Lord hates. Seven that are an abomination to Him and one of them is lying lips. He detests Lying lips. He hates it. It's so contrary to his character. At least four times in the Bible, it says God cannot lie. God cannot lie. He is a truth-speaking God. He never is deceptive in any of it. I mean, God's promises are there. There's no small print underneath them. There's no rebates attached to them. They're just there, straightforward, and he summons people, believe, I am a God of truth. And friends, when we look at these commands like this, the spotlight of God's law falls upon us and, and we may be able to see the ways in which we haven't been honest, that we've been deceitful. And you need to own up to that. But you also need to press in to the true promise of the gospel. That there is a Savior who has died for us lawbreakers. There is a Savior who has laid down his life and bore the full weight of the punishment of God's law on the cross of Calvary so that we would not have to endure it for all eternity. 
And he calls you, as in the sacrifice, to lay your hand, to press it in upon his head as he was slaughtered on your behalf. So, be generous towards your neighbor. Be genuine towards your neighbor. Thirdly, be just towards your neighbor. Verse 13, you shall not oppress your neighbor nor rob him. And then he spells out exactly what he means by this. The wages of a hired man shall not remain with you overnight until morning. You shall not curse a deaf man, nor place a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear your God, I am Yahweh. And then we can continue on in verse 15 and 16. You shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor, nor defer to the great. But you shall judge your neighbor in righteousness. You shall not go about as a slanderer among your people. And you shall not stand against the life of your neighbor. I am Yahweh. So again, we have this cluster of commands here. Not to oppress or rob your neighbor. To oppress refers to withholding that which belongs to another. Robbing refers to taking that which is someone's property by force. Defrauding was sometimes done, as we see here, by not giving hired workers their wages in a timely manner. An act that was especially cruel if the, wor- if the workers were living hand to mouth. In the ancient world, If you hired day laborers, there was an expectation as we see in the parable of the day laborers in the Gospel of Matthew that at the end of the day, one was paid their wages. Now, I understand that's not the culture we live in. You know, maybe at the end of a week or two weeks, or some of you may get paid monthly. But there there is an expectation, right? But the same thing is today. I mean, if... If, if, you were supposed to, if you're supposed to get your paycheck on Friday and it's not there, there's a problem, right? It's not good. You're being withheld your wages, that which is due to you. And God don't like it. God sees it. He calls it oppression. Proverbs chapter 3 and verse 28. Do not say to your neighbor, go and come back. Tomorrow I will give it to you when it is there with you. Deuteronomy 24 verse 14 and 15. You shall not oppress a hired person who is afflicted and needy. Whether he is one of your brothers or one of your sojourners who is in your land within your gate, you shall give him his wages On his day before the sun goes down, for he is afflicted and sets his soul on it, so that he will not cry against you to Yahweh, and it becomes sin to you. In other words, he's saying, be careful. Don't withhold wages. 
They may cry out and I will hear them. This is about being just and fair. Giving that which is due to another, that which is due to the other. And this isn't just an Old Testament concept. The book of James, pretty sure that's in the New Testament, right? James chapter 5, verse 1. Come now, you rich. Cry, howling over your miseries which are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted and their corrosion will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. You have stored up such treasure in these last days. Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields, that which has been withheld by you, cries out against you and the outcries of those who did the harvesting have reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. You have lived luxuriously on the earth and have lived in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous man. He does not resist you. Book of James, right? James is calling out the wealthy who are in the midst of the church saying, you wicked, you better pay your workers. Be fair. Be just. Be righteous. Verse 14. You shall not curse a deaf man nor place a stumbling block before the blind but you shall fear your God. I am Yahweh. Here we have thousands of years before the American Disabilities Act. God says, see that person who's deaf? See that person who's blind? You shall not mistreat them. Cursing of a deaf man. Here, the, the Hebrew word here to curse is literally to treat lightly. It, 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 uh, it's contrasted often in the Old Testament with, with kavod or glory or weightiness to treat a person with honor and dignity and respect. He's saying, you shall not treat lightly this person who is deaf. They are a fellow image bearer. I see what you're doing. And also the person who is blind. You should not put a stumbling block before their feet. In other words, the cursing of a deaf person, it would be like mocking somebody. I mean, after all, they can't hear you. Or the person who's blind, uh, leading them down a path in which they might fall or get tripped. It's the idea of mistreating, abusing those who are physically disabled. God, and, and notice, notice the language God gives here. At the end of this, he says, Fear God, for I am Yahweh. You shall fear your God, I am Yahweh. Why does he say that? The point is, is that while the deaf person may not hear, 
And while the blind person may not see, I hear and I see. I see what you're doing. I see how you're using and abusing that person with disability. And so, friends, you can see here, God is concerned with treating justly and fairly and with dignity all image bearers, all persons made in the image of God. This can sometimes take place amongst young people, picking on persons with disabilities, persons who maybe just don't fit in. Often junior high and high school is merciless, absolutely merciless. But God sees it. God sees any wicked Horrible treatment of persons who are different, awkward, have disabilities. And God calls His people instead to be an advocate for such people. To have compassion towards them. To be a defender of them. To maybe even get hit with a bloody nose for them. Friend, if you have been involved with picking on others because of their physical disabilities, you need to confess it to God. Repent. I've noticed as of late so many young people being bombarded with the ideologies of this day and age of the whole LGBTQ plus movement. And, and it seems to me, and this is purely anecdotal, there's no data, I don't even know if you could keep data on it, but so often the persons that are, that wind up succumbing to the pressure and wind up declaring themselves, identifying as something else other than the sex they are born with, they, they often, not always, but often seem to be people who tend to be outcasts already. But they find a cheerleading band when they go that direction. And there can be a temptation to be harsh towards persons who go that route. I mean, after all, we're in the midst of all these culture wars. But God would have us call us to have compassion towards others even those who've been deceived by the lies of the world. To seek to be a light in the midst of the darkness. Verse 15. You shall do no injustice in judgment. So this seems to be indicative of, again, the law courts, which often persons are Witnesses, you shall not be partial to the poor, nor defer to the great, but you shall judge your neighbor in righteousness. This is amazing here. 
because God understands the, the temptations of the human heart. He says, you may be tempted to show partiality towards the rich because they may grant you favors. You may be tempted to be partial to the poor because you feel sorry for them and you want to stick it to the rich. But God tells us the truth, whether we are speaking about the rich person or the poor person, God is saying you are not to be partial to either. This is actually quite fascinating here because with one stroke of the pen, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, Moses puts, a, puts to death Marxist in all of its Marxism and all of its children with one swipe of the pen because you understand Marxism as elaborated by Karl Marx and his cohorts put everything in the context of class warfare oppressor and oppressee and his language came along the lines of the rich oppress the poor And so all of Marxism and communism and socialism says you need to show partiality to the poor to level the playing field. In all the language of social justice, you need to aim for equal outcomes. All the while showing partiality to certain people groups in order to attain those equal outcomes. But friends, social justice is not God's justice. In fact, according to God, it's injustice. Here, God understands the temptation to show partiality both to the rich and to the poor. And He says, no, no, no. We're aiming for equal application of just law here. And notice verse 16. You shall not go about as a slanderer among your people, and you shall not stand against the life of your neighbor. I am Yahweh. Verse 16 here, again, you think, how does this fit in with these other commands? Well, a slander means to to speak down upon somebody, to speak lies related to somebody. And again, the context of justice being a true witness, being a slander towards somebody says, you shall not stand over the life of your neighbor. That we, we saw when we went through chapter 18, how many of these laws, the punishment of this law was capital, right? Death. And so, how, what he's saying here is that you could lie on the witness stand and somebody can die because of your false slanderous testimony. And so God is concerned here about righteousness, about justice, about fairness in his law courts. And he says, you shall not slander your neighbor. And and literally, a, a very literal translation, stand over the blood of your neighbor. Because of your lying, it has led to consequences of another person and they're dying because of it. 
And sadly and tragically, no doubt, there's probably people in prison right now based off of false testimony, slanderous testimony. Every once in a while it comes out, even people have been on death row for years. And it was based upon a lie. God sees it. God is concerned about it. God wants society to be run by justice, not the unequal, partial application of the law. And again, he, the chorus, the refrain here, I am Yahweh. God sees it all. He wants us to wants us to be genuine, to be generous, and to be just towards one another. But I can't help but think as I look at this last verse in verse 16. You shall not go about as a slander among your people, and you shall not stand over the blood of your neighbor. I am Yahweh. I can't help but think of the Gospels. Where we see the Lord Jesus And Trump charges are brought against Jesus, false accusations, slanderous accusal. In Matthew chapter 26, verse 59, it says, Now the chief priest and the whole Sanhedrin kept trying to obtain false testimony against Jesus so that they might put him to death. And they did not find any, even though many false witnesses came forward. But later on, two came forward and said, This man stated, I am able to destroy the sanctuary of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said to him, Do you not answer? What are these men testifying against you? But Jesus kept silent. Luke chapter 22, verse 65 or, yeah, verse 65, and they were saying many other things against him, blaspheming. And in 23, verse 2, it says, they began to accuse him, saying, we found this man misleading our nation, forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Now, I've read the Gospels many times over. I don't remember Jesus saying, don't pay taxes to Caesar. In fact, I remember him saying just the opposite. But yet, this is what they accused him of. And they stood over his blood with their slanderous accusations. Demonstrating 2 Peter 3.18 Christ died once for all the just for the unjust to bring us to God. Jesus is treated as a lawbreaker so that we would be treated as law abiders. The law indicts us and brings its curse upon us. But Galatians 3.13 says Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. 
Turn to Jesus, my friends. Let's pray.